This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 322, A Conversation with Danny Fingeroth. Welcome to the show. This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 322. It's our Conversation with Danny Fingeroth episode, and I'm your host, Adam Chapman. Um, so this week's episode is a great one. We sit down for an hour with Danny Fingeroth, who is an acclaimed uh, writer and editor, um, well-known for uh, creating Darkhawk in the early 90s at Marvel and also being um, an editor on the Spider-Man books, both in the 80s and in the 90s. Uh, he worked on a publication for Tomorrow's Publishing uh, in the 2000s. He's also written a few books. He's also uh, an educator. Um, and a wealth of information and has a, a lot of good perspective on the comic book industry. So we were able to sit down with him today and go, uh, go over his career a bit. Um, this varies a little bit from our typical uh, episode. Usually with conversation episodes, I like to kind of go from the beginning of the career and kind of work through. This one I thought we actually kind of were a little bit more organic. We kind of jumped around from here or there, went from talking about him being an editor to him being a writer. So um, a little bit more, it's going to seem haphazard to those who have uh, listened to more episodes of the show in the past, but it was actually a lot of fun, really interesting stuff. Uh, Danny was really cool to have on the show, and hopefully we will have a chance to uh, get him on the show again sometime in the future to kind of go... Uh, a little bit more specific and in-depth on some of the work he worked on when he was on the Spider-Man books, uh, specifically, obviously, the Clone Saga, Maximum Carnage, etc. We do touch on those things, but not as in-depth, uh, so that might be something that we'll revisit at some point in a future episode. Uh, so for now, we'll jump right in just a second, but some housekeeping first of all. You can email me at comicshenanigans at gmail.com, like the show on Facebook, rate and review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and you can also um, uh, listen to us on Stitcher. So uh, that's all the ways you can contact us and listen to us. And without further ado, let's jump right on into the episode with Danny Fingeroff. Danny, welcome to Comic Shenanigans. Thank you for taking the time today. Uh, thank you for asking me to be here. Now, usually my first question is asking uh, my guests about the history of comics. But for you, I want to try a little something different. I want to ask, when you do uh, sign work at conventions, etc., what is the most common thing that is brought to you? you find it's usually uh, stuff that you've edited or that you've written? I find that it's more often stuff that I've edited. You know, I think that was the more... Uh, I mean, Dark Hawk was one of the comics I wrote, and, and uh, Dazzler and, uh, and Deadly Foes. So I think that stuff was, was certainly um, highly circulated, and, and people bought a lot of copies. But, you know, Amazing Spider-Man, just because it's Amazing Spider-Man, is going to get more and more... I go. I tend to go through. Uh, there are uh, different bursts of Dazzler. Uh, sometimes I get a lot of Dazzlers, and sometimes I don't get any for you know like months or years, and then suddenly it'll be a whole lot. So I'm not sure what spurs those kind of blips of interest in Dazzler, but it, it is uh, uh, sort of uh, interesting to see that. And, and you know, the rare things I get are. I don't know if anybody's ever brought me a British comic because I worked in my first job at Marvel was working in the British department putting out uh, uh, material that was only seen in England. Um, and then some of the very uh, early things I've done, I did, like a couple of Avengers uh, stories that uh, I co-wrote uh, with my very first stuff published in the States. So, um, you know, so that's... Um, Okay. Here's a, an odd question. Um, what do you prefer to be... Did you prefer being an editor of comics or actually writing the comics yourselves? You know, I like them both. Both, um, you know, they both use creative 
parts of your brain. Um, they both um, enable you to uh, get involved in story. Um, you know, the, the nice thing about editing is you can be involved in multiple projects at once. You know, um, you can you can sort of suggest or you know, in some cases, dictate ideas for projects and you can sort of be spinning a lot of plates at once. You can have all sorts of things going on, you know, that are sort of based on your suggestion, so you feel you can take a certain amount of uh, pride uh, in it, uh, even though you haven't done the nuts and bolts work of having to figure out the choreography of fight scenes and the uh, intricacies of, uh, you know, the, the soap opera elements. You know, if you put a gun to my head, I'd probably say the writing aspect, though. You know, I think that that's sort of you're more, you know, you're more in control, sort of. I mean, of course, then, then as a, you know, as an editor, also, I mean, depending on the situation, but say in a, in a you know, in theory, in a company like Marvel as an editor, you have, you know, more uh, authority or, or company-granted power to put your ideas into play, but of course then you risk alienating uh, or, or uh, you know, uh, your, your creative team or just, make, you know, having them just sort of um, go into automatic pilot mode. So, you know, what you, you know, what you want as an editor is to get the best people you can and then um, let them do their best work, you know, and, and, and some, again, some so much of that is chemistry, both uh, on both sides of the desk. You know, where you know I've had people tell me I'm the best editor that I've ever had, and people tell me I'm the worst editor that they've ever had. And I'm <laughs> the same guy, and I probably I probably said many of the same things to them. You know, but some people take you know a suggestion or a directive as an insult, and other people take it as a challenge or or even a compliment. Oh, this guy cares about my work. You know, um, so but uh, so so it's an interesting. Mix, um, you know. I think I think I see myself uh, as a writer. Um, that's that's um, you know. But it's a it's a close it's a close race between the two of them because they both, you know, say if being a comic book writer, uh, you know, is one of the top ten jobs you can have. Then being a comic book editor is also up there in the top ten. Okay. Uh, let me ask a question about, let's put on your editor hat for a second. Uh, what would sure. you say were some of the the stories or achievements you had as an editor that you're most proud of from your career? Um, you know, um, boy, as an editor, that's, that's interesting. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I think I'm proudest of putting, to, as I just you know, mentioned uh, before, putting together that uh, that click, you know, um, you know, uh, Fabian Cieza and Mark Bay were the Warriors, uh, Tom DeFalco and Ron Franz on Amazing Spider-Man, uh, you know, and, and, and many others I'm sure I'm forgetting, and I'll get angry emails after the broadcast, uh, people ask me why I, you know, left them out. Um, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's sort of a, a magic thing, you know, you're doing, you're putting out a monthly comic, or say in the case of Spider-Man, you're putting out, you know, close to 20 Spider-Man related comics a month, and let's face it, not everyone is going to be a work of great inspiration or genius, um, you know, a lot of them will just be, you know, professional and entertaining, but uh, we'll just sort of get lost in the um, mind edifice of know of, of the history of a particular character um you know i, I think um it was always a pleasure working with uh jam dematis and howard mackey and eric fine and just you know a lot of you know people again who who who, who, who enjoy the collaborative process you know i mean i guess the you know there are some cases where you're an editor where you're where you're, where you're just a, a rubber stamp or or the uh, creator person would prefer you just to be a rubber stamp, uh, but you can't, you can't always be, you know, you have a responsibility if you're working on a flagship character to that character, um, to putting it, you know, to kind of, you know, the editor is in a weird position, the editor is kind of that, that interface.
case between the business interests of the company and the, you know, and the interests of the writers and artists uh, who work on various comics, and those don't always intersect. And then, of course, you have your own personal interests, which range from, you know, wanting to have a legacy and stories that will live with a great reputation, and you know, on you know, on down to wanting to just protect your job and make sure you don't get fired. You know, so. It's, <laughs> Um, so, you know, I, I, I liked what the uh, writers did with Peter Parker's parents, which was a, an idea that I, I had had to bring them back at one point. Um, I enjoyed uh, the Maximum Carnage storyline. I guess, I guess the ones that I, uh, you know, enjoyed were ones that often involved my own ideas. I loved working with uh, Tom DeFalco, you know, and Roger Stern after Stanley are probably, you know, just about two of the best, uh, you know, two of the people who understand Spider-Man the most. I mean, again, Mattis and um, lots of other people have a very a deep understanding too. But, you know, Tom, you know, Tom and Roger are probably the foremost uh, Spidey guys. So, you know, uh, working with, with, say, Tom, he'd bring in, a, you know, he's somebody to whom the character lives, is alive, you know, that, you can just feel that Peter Parker is almost like a member of his family or, or a good friend. And when, he, and when he, you know, when he brings in a story idea, you know, you just get the sense that, uh, oh yeah, this is, this is almost more, it's almost more reporting it than making it up. It's almost like he's, he's talking about somebody he's pals with. So um, again, I'm sure I'm blanking. It was fun working with Eric Larson on his Spider-Man uh, arc. That was, that was kind of neat. You know, I don't think he'd really gotten the chance to uh, stretch his uh, writing muscles to that degree, um, you know, as well as as well as his uh, artist skills. Now, as we talk, I'm sure I'll think of others, but um, those are some of the highlights that spring to my mind right now. Now, obviously, when we talk about highlights, it's hard not to ask what you would consider your lowlights or things you you wish you could redo or revisit and change if you ever had that power. As an editor. Uh, yeah, no, it's a... Um, I don't know. I mean, there are. I just don't... Uh, you know, I try not to dwell on them. You know? Um, That's probably healthier. I think, yeah, I think early in my writing career, I, you know, like a lot of uh, writers, I probably uh, overrode. I put too many words in, you know? Um, which, um, you know, I think a lot of writers do, and if they're good words, I think Editor primarily, but you know what? Feel free to answer as a writer as well. Oh well, I guess I guess the over the uh, you know the overwriting part was to deal more with my early uh, writing. And as an editor, you know you you again it's part of that balancing act. You know where you in theory have the you know company granted authority to do anything, but in reality, of course, you don't want to alienate. Uh, That's fine, yeah. Uh, if I get punched drunk talking, I may uh, get, get some more specifics later. <laughs> well, let's go to a happier topic. Uh, well, at least I hope it's happier. Um, you wrote a number of uh, What If comics. Um, I did. What was, it, what was it like kind of writing What Ifs? Uh, what was it like kind of pitching ideas, or were they ones that were kind of given? And how did that process kind of work? Because I've always been a fan of What If as a concept, and specifically I was looking at some of the issues you had written, and they're actually some of my favorite What If issues. So I'm just curious... Well, I'm curious what that was like. You know, that was a great experience uh, working with C- editor Craig Anderson. You know, um, 
you know, he was uh, an editor who, you know, was a friend, but he, uh, as far professionally, he was a big fan of my work. So I didn't, you know, I didn't feel like I was auditioning for him. Whereas with some editors, they make you feel like you're constantly auditioning. And um, so Craig liked my ideas. I think I think at that point, um, uh, when I was uh, primarily writing in, 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 in that, well, actually, I guess I was writing and editing. But whatever, was, I was I was kind of a very deeply immersed in the uh, Marvel mythos from beginning up until whatever was the, the present day. Then, so coming up with interesting, uh, hopefully interesting uh, riffs on the storyline kind of flowed pretty organically, you know, you, um, uh, and, and as I say, it, it's, it's always great working with an editor who's enthusiastic about your work as opposed to one who makes you feel like he's doing you a favor just by, uh, you know, buying you a uh, two-fish sandwich or something, you know, so um, Craig was always enthusiastic, eager, had good suggestions, um, and me up with a terrific artist on, on, on those what-ifs. Uh, also, so it's it's um you know yeah that was uh, I'm glad you brought that up because that really it's funny I wasn't the regular guy but I must have done half a dozen or eight of those including a two-parter uh, with a Jim Valentino in which, uh, about um, what if Spider-Man uh, what what uh, Spider-Man and Mary Jane it was a, it was a two-part what if Spider-Man and not Mary Mary Jane and what if Spider-Man and Mary the Black Cat. I know that one very well, just because that was the first "What If" comic I ever I ever bought was that that two parter. Oh well, don't make me feel too old. But um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> you, must into, you must you must have gotten into it in your forties or something. I guess. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, um, <laughs> yeah, those those were just you know what if was um, you know it it the tricky thing because right because one of the things you you know you try to do as a writer. And, and I teach writing uh, also, uh, you know. So one of the things you try to do is you, you try to write stories where, right, the ideal, if you're writing a story where the ending is surprising but inevitable. In other words, you know, you want your readers to be surprised, but then if they go back and, you know, you want them to say, you know, that really was a big surprise and I didn't see it coming. But it was the inevitable result of everything that the characters did and the, you know, that the writers and the writer and artist set up in the story. So if that's your goal, and, and I think with most writers it is, then, then to create an alternative scenario um, is a big challenge, right? Because, I, mean, I mean, look, I think in all our lives we make choices every day um, and some of them seem like small cho- small choices, and yet they have, they have big consequences. Um, and I mean, I get you know. Again, if you're accepted at two colleges, you have to decide where you want to go to. And there's always that, you know, two roads diverged, and uh, you know what 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 were you know what what alternate universe did I leave behind? Uh, but of course, you want the you want the decision that a superhero makes. You know, to be dramatic, you know, and yet not be contrived. That was always the trick with what if to, you know, to have that happen. And I, and I think sort of the the ground rules for what if, um, you know, in those days, um, as opposed to say an Elseworld. You know, an Elseworld would be like, what if Batman lived in Victorian times or something, which is certainly a great, you know, um, way to develop all kinds of stories. But the what if you know, the ideal what if would be what if a character made a different choice as opposed to, uh, you know, so, so that it still is a thing that comes from character, um, you know, so, you know, and, and of course, you know, in stories derive from conflict, you know, what do you do as a character do under pressure, and how do they react, so it's, you know, that was, that was the biggest challenge of what ifs, I think, making having like a key character make a different choice or you know without it making it you know with, with, it, with it still seeming natural and and, um, and logical to the character I think my favorite what if that you did was um, what if Daredevil had killed the kingpin 
Yeah, which is, I I read it recently. Uh, it still holds up pretty well. I mean, it, it's just it's exactly what you said it was. It's you know the 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 path not taken during Born Again, and uh, I mean, I've, I've, as I said, I have read all of your What If issues and I enjoyed them all. But there's something about that one that always stands out to me. I mean, Daredevil's always been one of my favorite characters, so that's probably why. But uh, the way that you kind of took what was happening in Born Again and went a different direction that still felt organic and hearing you talk about it, it's interesting to kind of put that into context and how you frame the issue. I, you know, I, haven't, even, I haven't read that in, you know, in, in 20 years, but uh, thank you. I appreciate it. You know, and I, I remember that being, you know, I, it was not only, look, Miller and Matthew Kelly had done such a powerful storyline. You know, there's certainly plenty of great material to work from in that. Um, uh, but, yeah, but again, that story that was so seamless, how do you have the character make a different decision and, and still make it a credible story? So I, I, I'll take your word for it that it, that it worked. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but, it, and, 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 you know, on a larger, you know, on a larger um, uh, canvas, it's also sort of that eternal question about superheroes is, wow, did you just kill the guy? <laughs> you know? Um, you know that's that that's you know if you if if you if you as a superhero take it on yourself to like meet out uh, justice, then you know I mean look that's why they're superheroes generally, and why it's always such a big controversy, like in the Man of Steel movie. Spoiler alert: you know when Superman kills the guy, uh, kills Zod at the end, it was so controversial because people still have that image of a superhero not killing, uh, although I think those rules in the comics have changed quite a bit for most characters, which I don't know if that's such a great change, but they, you know, they have, they're more quote-unquote realistic, um, but that was, you know, certainly why would, yeah, so, so, you got a gun, he's there, helpless, shoot the guy, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you could, you could, you know, you're daredevil, you can, like, anticipate anything he's going to do. Um, well, what I liked about that story is again that because of how how you built it into the Born Again storyline, it felt still felt like an earned, like a thing that would ha- could have happened. Whereas, and it right. didn't feel like you were writing Daredevil out of character because of the situation that Daredevil had already been in. Well, thanks. I, yeah, I like that. I really appreciate that. And and you're probably more conversant. Although I do get that story to sign fairly frequently at, at, at conventions. You know, I just see the cover and then uh, and sign it. Well, it's a great-looking cover, i got to say. Yeah, yeah. Because it's very striking. Who did the cover? Was it... Uh, uh, covered is Keith Pollard. That's what I was going to say, Keith Pollard. Inked by Keith or inked by somebody else? Uh, I don't see any other name listed under cover, oh, so... Yeah, yeah, no, Keith, well, Keith's a wonderful artist, you know, and especially on covers, he was really, uh, you know, very, you know, terrific design. You know, design sense, where he could make it a poster, but he Yeah. <laughs> what the story was. Um, yeah, no, the, yeah, I'm sorry. What's oh, the no. Question? No, no, I was, I was going to transition to another question, but uh, go ahead. Sure. No, no, go for it. What's the next question? Um, well, I'm sure you've answered this many times over the years, but what led to the creation of Dark Hawk? Um, you know, I, I wish I could say that I was uh, walking, uh, you know, that, that I was walking down the street and a, and a magic hawk came and talked to me. Um, well, you just did. Uh, I, I guess well, yeah, that's what happened. I was walking down the street and a magical hawk came and talked to me. <laughs> and, uh, and, and it told me the criminals are a cowardly and superstitious lot. Um, the, the, the less exciting version is that Marvel was in a period of growth. And um, so uh, Tom DeFalco had, um, as part of his uh, role as editor in chief, was uh, coming up with the sort of short um, three or four page um, uh, Bibles for new characters and Dark Hawk was one of them and um, you know eventually, you know, I, I was originally going to be the editor and at a certain point uh, Tom and I were talking and we figured it might be uh, a good idea for me to be the writer of it so that so um, you know I would, 
I would say what I did with that, uh, and then uh, so the editor was a guy named uh, Greg Wright, who was a longtime Marvel staffer, and he and I did, did a lot of work expanding uh, Tom's original premise, which was very solid, um, but he has only three or four uh, typed pages, so it left a lot of details to be filled in. I'd say the biggest, you know, my my biggest contribution in some ways, and the, and the thing that I thought was um, made Darkhawk a little different. I think in Tom's original premise, um, the uh, you know Darkhawk, Chris Powell's father, gets killed, and, and he vows to become a crime fighter. So more in the traditional sort of Batman, Spider-Man thing. And uh, I figured, well, we've seen that a lot. You know, not that you know, I mean, it's always a strong motivator even motivator, as we say in America, or in, <laughs> or in Canada, but, um, but I thought, well, let's make it um, that Chris sees his father taking a bribe, his father, you know, is a kind of a, um, a, a police officer who was very highly respected and regarded, let's see if Chris sees his father taking a payoff from a gangster, um, and then, you know, and then in the same scenario, father disappears, but he gets, he finds the amulet and becomes Darkhawk. And then, so what does a kid do? What does a teenager do, right? Basically, what does Peter Parker for the, you know, 90s do um, when his role model turns out, you know, to seemingly have feet of clay, and he's been given this power? Does he, you know, does he go to hell with it? You know, I just saw, you know, my role model and my mother uh, sell out to uh, the bad guys, and should I be on a bad guy or just look out for number one? Or do I, now that I have this power, do I use it responsibly? Do I have an even more of an obligation to use the power responsibly because of that? You know, what's, you know, I, th I think this ultimately, you know, if Spider-Man and characters inspired by Spider-Man, if the lesson is of great power, they must also come great responsibility, which in a way is the lesson of all superheroes, but certainly Spider-Man, um, then the, you know, and if that's one important metaphor for growing up, for going from child to adolescent to adult, you know, that you have growing powers and growing responsibilities, and how does one handle those? Uh, then the Dark Hawk story is another metaphor of growing up. You know, I mean, you know, one's parents, one's authority figures are always saying and preaching the ideal, you know, what you should do, don't lie, don't steal, don't, you know, you know, do help the elderly lady across the street, you know, do, you know, always do the right thing, never do the wrong thing, and yet, of course, in real life, you know, that's very hard to do, um, you know, and at a certain point as a kid, you know, you encounter your parents, you know, what, what, what a kid or a teenager would see as hypocrisies, you know, what, as you get older, you go, well, those are sort of necessary life compromises, and Everybody makes them to one extent or another. So, so Dark Hawk is about how does a teenager, how does an idealistic teenager deal with a sudden lesson in the fact that life is not black and white, but there are a lot of shades of gray in between. Hmm. Interesting. Very interesting. <laughs> I, I think it was, but I said it, so what do I know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I want to put your uh, your editor hat back on for a second. Okay. Uh, so I'm getting, take. Uh, I'm head burned from all these head changes. But okay. <laughs> um, what was uh, it like getting uh, Sal Buscema to be the artist on Spectacular Spider-Man? Uh, Sal was already in place when when I, um, you know, I, I had two different uh, tenures on Spider-Man. I edited in the '80s, and then for various reasons, I I, um, I, I became a full-time freelancer for several years, and then I came back thinking I would never see those books again, especially once they had instituted editors, you know, royalties for editors. Uh, but again, circumstances uh, happened um, where I became the group editor of Spider-Man, Spider-Man had grown to, you know, or, or during the, the, I mean, editor and then group editor as the line grew. Um, so Sal was in place, I'd worked with him a little, but uh, this was more, uh, so it was great having Sal there. You know, Sal, uh, especially when I, you know, actually that's another wonderful team up that, that happened to work out just beautifully. Him and J.M. DeMattis, they just loved working together. Um, they had a great interaction. Sal would take uh, DeMattis' uh, plots and 
now. The thing I, you know, obviously you never play pool with Salvin Salmon because you can't win. So that's just, you know, I'm just telling you, readers, if you should ever come into Sal and he should ask you to play pool, you know, uh, be, you know, be prepared to lose whatever you have in your wallet. But <laughs> having said that, um, Sal is just an amazing, you know, nice guy, smart guy, talented guy. He's an actor. He has like 11 other things he does besides uh, uh, drawing. But, you know, the thing that was most amazing to him is in a way that you see very few people do. He was willing, able, and eager to reinvent himself so that, in, you know, so that you could see his work progress, especially when he would work with a writer like Demattis uh, or, or also with, with Defalco, writers who he found inspiring. Um, he was willing to go the extra hundred miles, not just the extra mile. You know, he would, you know, whereas a lot of people, as they get older, you know, they kind of uh, rely, either their skills diminish or at the very least they come to rely on a set of stock poses and, you know, and, they, and you can really see that they're just doing it uh, for the paycheck or, um, and, and you know, nothing wrong with that, you know, lot to be said for a paycheck. Um, but Sal, I just found, always willing to learn, always willing to um, to to do his, you know, to, to do his work in a, his work evolved in a, in a very um, impressive way. And, and I found that working with him on, on the Spectacular Spider-Man was just a pleasure, you know, both personally and creatively. Um, he always, you know, he just always got what it was about, um, and, and, uh, you know, it was just, you know, especially as one grows older oneself, the, the idea that you can still grow and develop, you know, into your 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, I mean, look, Stanley is still at it, and, you know, Will Eisner worked until, you know, he didn't literally die at the drawing board, but he On a similar bent, you gave you I guess you, you put Mark Bagley on Amazing Spider Man. How did that kind of come about taking him over from New Warriors? Um well yeah, it was a while before also, Mark and I when I came back on staff, um, one of the actually, actually goes back even further. Mark had drawn one of my what is. He drew my he actually drew my first what is. He drew what if the alien costume what if Spider Man's alien costume had lived. That's right. That had uh, uh, what if Spider-Man's alien costume had taken him over? Um, it was before Bannon was introduced. Um, so that was my first one. So I got to know him on that. And then we did uh, a new universe issue that um, that was uh, never uh, that was never released. But it was, it was a, a character Justice, who was one of the part of the universe. And I think we worked on some shorter projects. And then when I came back on staff, I inherited um, Strike Force Moratory. And um, Mark was drawing that. And then, I, you know, and then it's, it's funny, you know, this is a thing that I think probably is lost, not just in comics, but in a lot of things in our modern era. Um, you know, now we have email, so that if, even if I'm going to call you, Right, right. I'll still often, right. Even if it's like a close, the idea of picking up the phone and calling your friend is 
first I have to call his, his house. And so in Mark's case, I called his house, and he didn't have a separate work phone, so I talked to his wife, and we became friendly. And then I talked to Mark, and, you know, just you, you know, you, you're, the actual business you have to transact maybe like five minutes worth of talking, but then you're on the phone for an hour because, uh, you know, since you're having fun talking, and, you know, you rationalize it. You know, you're doing it because it's fun. You rationalize it because it's like, well, it's good for the health of the company and the comic, you know. And, and, and it's certainly, you know, that's partly true. But uh, so Mark uh, became friendly. And again, he was a guy who I could see was eager, uh, you know, eager to learn, eager to become a regular, to have a regular series. Um, you know, was very enthusiastic. Um, and so... I guess when New Warriors came back, and he'd done some Spider-Man work, I think he was in Salicrub, um, and he was certainly a, a busy guy. He did a lot of, you know, he was a, uh, you know, a, a real workhorse, and, you know, in a, in a good sense. He did a lot of work, and it was all good. Um, so he, uh, when New Warriors came about, um, I don't remember if he and Fabian had a, had a uh, working or personal relationship, but certainly... Um, they were the, they were the two people, you know, Fabian came to me, they were very enthusiastic and, uh, and excited to take on the characters. Because when New Warriors was first, that was, that was another, uh, concept that came, you know, from, uh, from Tom's, uh, Tom DeFalco's typewriter, not computer, typewriter. Um, <laughs> and again, it was a very, and then they were introduced in, in Thor, as you may recall. So the, the idea was let's take you know let's take some of these lesser known characters um, and make it you know teenagers and make sort of whether Teen Titans of the 90s or Marvel Teen Titans and you know I have to say both in and out in the company and in fandom the New Warriors was greeted very cynically you know it just seemed like uh, wow here's here's a bunch of lame characters we'll put together and make a lame book you know just uh, you know there was not a lot of which, in a way, is good. Expectations were low. Um, so I put Fabian and Mark together on the book. They clicked personally. Uh, the book was, you know, uh, was terrific, as you may recall, those first, you know, 25 or 50 issues um, really just kind of, uh, you know, really reverberated. You know, with, um, and Fabian and I said, knock down, drag out, fight over plots, too, which I think was good. You know, Fabian wanted to, uh, break every taboo. Um, you know, I was willing to break certain taboos or break certain rules, but I also, you know, had in my mind what made for a good story, what made for a good story. Um, so although, you know, it seems ridiculous to me, I was a grown up in that relationship, you know, but, you know, um, so, um, so, so that, the, and, and plus Mark and Fabian also were, you know, at a certain point, they were discussing the stories between themselves as well, which is where that whole phone call thing comes in again, um, that, that sort of is, is lost in a lot of aspects of modern life. Um, so, um, so that's how that, uh, that, that came to be. And, 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 um, and so I put Bagley on it. Uh, you know, I guess there were several artists who, you know, whenever a new title comes up, there's always a bunch of artists who want it naturally. For, uh, for the obvious reasons, um, but I had, I had enjoyed working with Mark, and I had a lot of faith in his ability. So putting him on uh, New Warriors was uh, pretty logical, um, and then, so that was the origin of that. And, um, and, then, and then from there, um, to Spider-Man, yeah, and it was a logical leap. I knew I'd seen his Spider-Man before. I knew how he drew, you know, the speedball. You know, you know, the New Warriors had. You know the you know, Spider-Man for the uh, '70s, who was Nova, and Spider-Man for the '80s, who was Speedball. <laughs> um, and, and I guess even Dark Horse guest starred a lot. So Spider-Man for the '90s, Dark Horse. Um, so I knew that Mark could draw that kind of character, and, I, and, and, and it, I'm guessing that he lobbied for it too, because his dream was to draw Spider-Man. So I don't remember specifically, but I would imagine that he that that you know, anytime that came up, I'm sure he expressed uh, enthusiasm and interest. And then he was fast enough that for a while he was doing both. He was doing New Warriors and Spider-Man, but then, you know, especially when Spider-Man would, uh, when we had the 
as an editor working on the spider titles what what was the process like or what was it like kind of coordinating the crossovers that started to become more frequent like obviously maximum carnage was a 14 part storyline over three months like what what was that like logistically besides being a nightmare um you know it was the best of times it was the worst of times because you know, we had you know one of my favorite memories um multi-part stories crossover either 
if not across the entire uh, Marvel line, that's across the Spider-Man line. How do you how do you take advantage of and cater to that that commercial uh, reality that people seem to want that response to buy it, and yet make it a viable story and even more challenging? You know, uh, that was how do you make? I mean, this is the hardest thing in a multi-part crossover. How do you make each part of that a, a satisfying uh, unit of entertainment? You know, even though it's part of an ongoing thing. So those were. I want to jump forward a little bit, and maybe uh, maybe we will do a, a part to it some other date, and actually drill down into Clone Saga and that kind of stuff. But I want to ask you um, what what led to the creation of Right Now. Um. Well, I I, um, I was. Although I guess uh, we should tell our listeners what that is in case they don't know. Oh, sorry. Right now, it's it's one of you know I've never liked that name, well, even though I made it up. It, it's. Full title of the magazine. It was a magazine for Tomorrow's Publishing, which is also a pun. T W O Mars. It's two people named Morrow, uh, run the, you know, own and run the company. So it's Tomorrow's Publishing. They put out Alter Ego and Back Issue and Mike Manley's Draw Magazine. Alter Ego is Roy Thomas. Back Issue is Michael Yuri. They put out. They put out uh, a thing for Lego fans called Brick Journal. They put out. They do a lot of publishing and Jack Kirby Collector, of course, is their first uh, magazine started by John Morrow. Um, publisher. So they put out very high-end, you know, I hate to call them fanzines, you know, but you know, but they're magazines about comics history, about the craft of comics, about different aspects of comics. Um, and um, they're the ones with whom Roy Thomas and I did the Stanley Universe book that came out a few years ago, that we went to Stan's archives and found a lot of rare material. So right now, I, I was... Um, Basically, um, I was um, freelancing at that point. I'd left Marvel uh, in 95. I'd had some other media jobs, and um, I was finding that I was in the Danny Fingerup business after. I, I, went, I worked for a bunch of internet startups that went the way of many internet startups, even though they were great people and great, uh, great fun to work at. And I... And really, I looked down, you know, Mike Manley and I had done Dark Horse together, and um, and he was doing Draw Magazine for Tomorrow's, which was a magazine of interviews and how-tos um, and articles about the art and craft of drawing comics. And Mike, and Mike did a terrific job, uh, did and still does a terrific job with that magazine. So basically, I just ripped off his idea, and I did it for writing, you know, and said, oh, you know, this." And, uh, and and I called up John Morrow again. It was the days, if there was email, but that was still people would like to call people, you know. Uh, and I called John, and I, you know, he knew who I was. I think we'd met casually uh, a couple of times, and he knew my uh, rep and, and, and my work. And I said, I'd like to do, you know, kind of writers. I kind of wanted to draw, you know, for comics writers, you know, uh, kind of writers' digest for comics and animation writers. And he turns out he had been thinking a similar along similar lines and so he you know so I wrote up a proposal and uh, he, you know we, we kind of banged that around and uh, came up with right now so it's W-R it's the official title is Danny Fingeroth's Right Now Magazine exclamation right mark is, huh exclamation mark exclamation mark exactly <laughs> right now right exclamation point after now um, you know it was one of those placeholder titles that I always thought was a little corny but I never came up with anything better and it did to express what the what the magazine was about so that, so that was how that started and um, you know it was very you know again very interesting uh, ultimate you know I think and it, it, it ran for seven years and we had a paperback and then Mike and I did that uh, how to create comics and script to print uh, paperback uh, that was you know that was, I think it was the first trade magazine crossover of all time and then we put it out as a, excuse me, as a book with extra and new material, um, and that's where that was the basis for the Stanley Universe book. It was based on Roy and my each doing 85th birthday tribute to Stan, and then expanding it. Uh, you know, uh, I, I went out to Stan's archives at the University of Wyoming. So right now um, was interviews, how-to, script samples, um, articles about comic book writing. Um, 
devoted following and to this, you know, pretty much every convention I go to, somebody, at least one person tells me how inspired they were and how useful and helpful right now is to them, which means a lot. But, but I think the thing is, most people, you know, believe they can write and they don't need pointers or they don't need a magazine. I don't know about most people, but a lot of people. Whereas, you know, again, most people can look at their art if they're, if they're a comic artist and say, gee, this needs to be improved or, you know, or my samples haven't gotten any work. Let me, let me find, you know, a resource that can help me and, and, and Draw Magazine was there for that. Right now, sort of the same purpose, but it's because, you, you know, because writing is in, the, in a way more subjective than uh, drawing. It never had that huge following that uh, that draw did. It had a very, you know, had a large following, and it did, you know, certainly do well for a while. And it, and and even at the end, there was a very dedicated, fiercely devoted, and uh, you know, interested following. But you know, at a certain point, it just wasn't financially viable uh, to keep doing it. Uh, but but it is you know, still available from the Tomorrow's website. The back issues, uh, and it's not in print. The digital ones, you know, uh, and the. Um, I know we're, cl- we're closing out here, but uh, we have two listener questions. Uh, this can be sure. as quick or as long as you want to answer them. Um, okay. The first is, uh, how is your vision for Spider-Man different from the editors that preceded you?
know, you know, Tom had been hired and became the Spider-Man editor a few years before I was. And uh, oddly enough, he was the first editor who ever had control of all the Spider-Man books. Before that, you know, it wasn't Marvel didn't think that way. You know, it was like it's in terms of franchise like that. Um, uh, you know, say the way you know franchise meaning the way all the Law and Order stories are kind of one franchise or you know or something like that. Um, so Tom had uh, you know had set out a vision. Of the of that the guy in all the different books and all the different titles was the same guy. You know, whoever was whoever was writing it and whoever was drawing it, it was still Peter Parker who got bitten by the spider at age 15, and you know, and has aged. You know, at that point, you know, has aged more slowly than a real person might, but has aged, developed, matured. Um, so I don't. My vision was just to, you know, and I, and I know, again, I know in, the, in previous years, I know there were, you know, the, you know, Spider-Man or Gags was, this was the, was it focused on one thing, it was focused on another thing. I think by that, I think, um, yeah, my vision was just good Spidey stories, you know, and, uh, and, 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 and my, you know, my touchstone, again, this is, this has changed and it hasn't because the movies, right, you see the movies and TV shows and they certainly go back to the basic legends of these characters. But I guess my, the thing that I tried to keep in the back of my head was if I was 12 years old and this was my first issue of Spider-Man, would I be excited by it? You know, that, that was always the bottom line for me. Um, because even though there was certainly plenty of adult, you know, college age and adult and readers, you know, just as there are today, you know, uh, at its best, at its best, I think Marvel Comics and superhero comics in general function on multiple levels. So there's a certain story for a 12-year-old, you know, a 10-year-old, 12-year-old, 15-year-old, and then a 21-year-old and a 40, you know. I mean, I go back and read some of, you know, the, the you know, Stan and Steve stories as a, you know, as an older adult, and I go, oh man, there's all this subtext here, right, just about the workplace and about family, you know, um, that maybe I was getting subconsciously as a kid, but now I'm reading it, and this is, this is all about what it's like to work, you know, what's like to have a boss, what's like to have Jerry Jonah Jameson, and what it's like when you're Peter Parker, you know, and sometimes, you know, Jonah is exploiting you, and sometimes you have a picture he wants, and you're able to you know, to get the edge on him as much as he may hate it, really. So, but but I think ultimately the superhero fantasy, if, if, if it's not for children, it's, if it's not for 12-year-olds, it's for the 12-year-old in all of us, you know. And you can make sophisticated stories, you can have stories with, you know, great moral complexity and, you know, and sophisticated uh, art, and yet I think ultimately these characters had to have grabbed you at some point when you were 12, you know, uh, you know, that, that, there's that famous saying that I wish I was clever enough to have made up, you know, the golden age of anything is 12, you know, <laughs> um, so that, that was, you know, that was sort of my touchstone, yes, we embellish it, yes, it's more sophisticated, but if I were 12 year old reading the Spider-Man story, would I want to come, would I want to come back to the next issue, right, mm. would I want to be best friends with the guys who wrote and drew it, you know, that sort of, you know, so I tried to make that. If you want to call that a vision, you know, feel free. Okay, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Again, we'll hope to get you on you. Uh, sometime again in the future, and we can uh, talk All more right. specifically. Great. This was great fun, and I would love to do it again if you're willing. So let's uh, let's uh, stay in touch about that. And uh, thanks everybody for putting up with me and listening for the past hour. All right. Thank you so much, Danny. Okay. Take care.